Welcome to Ancient Heroes, where we explore the mysteries and myths of the ancient world. I'm your host, Patrick Garvey, and in today's episode, I talk to historian and author Adrian Goldsworthy about the rise of the Macedonian Empire led by Alexander the Great. We've talked about Alexander a lot on this podcast over the years. He's one of the most prominent and popular figures of ancient history. But we haven't talked a lot about what made him so successful and how he was able to conquer so much so fast at such a young age. So we dive into that in this episode, and we of course have to start with Alexander's father, Philip, who laid much of the groundwork for what Alexander was able to accomplish. So I hope you enjoy the conversation, and as always, you can find show notes and links to everything we talk about at ancientheroes.net. Cool. So I'm here with Adrian Goldsworthy, who received his Doctor of Philosophy, or what we think of as a PhD, in Ancient History from Oxford, and is taught at Cardiff University, King's College, and the University of Notre Dame in London. Uh, He's the author of numerous books about ancient history, including Pax Romana, How Rome Fell, Caesar, and Hadrian's Wall. And he has a brand new book coming out on October 13th called Philip and Alexander, Kings and Conquerors. So um, we're here today to talk about uh, Philip II and Alexander the Great and uh, what you've been working on and your new account of their lives. Um, So I have to admit, I'm just now diving into it. I've been traveling the last couple of weeks. Um, That's why I'm in quarantine right now upstairs in my house. Um, so, uh, but I, I, I'm seeing that the new book is being described as a dual biography of both Alexander and Philip, which I found interesting. So starting out, I'd, I'd like to just hear a little bit about why you took that approach, um, and why you think it's important to sort of give an account of both of their lives. I think it's because Alexander gets all the attention. Um, it's always difficult, you know, if your son ends up being called the great, you're bound to be in his shadow to some extent. And there are lots of books on Alexander, you know, barely a year goes past when there isn't another one at least. And it can be straightforward history to what can we learn strategically or militarily, or even in terms of sort of business management style, this sort of thing. Right. Philip's the forgotten man. So when the publisher came and said, would you do a book on Philip and Alexander? If they'd asked me to do one on Alexander, I probably would have said no. But to do the, both of them, I thought, yeah, that's actually new, that's fresh you can start to tell the story and explain things. because It does make far more sense if you look at them together. Right, right. So yeah, I think that um, most listeners are going to be familiar with Alexander the Great on some level. We've done multiple episodes about Alexander, trying to analyze Alexander um, a couple of years ago. Uh, But very few people um, know much about Philip. And so... I'd like if you could just talk a little bit about Philip and kind of give listeners an introduction into who he was, why he's important, because those of us like myself that have kind of spent some time looking into this, you know, realize that he was very important. And at the time, you know, was this um, hugely influential figure. But like you said, he's kind of been lost to the general history of it all because Alexander the Great kind of looms over everything. So can you just talk to us about Philip a little bit and, um, and what your take is on, on his life? 
that's the thing. We often get the Philip who's just sort of there at the start of Alexander's story, almost waiting to be murdered. You know, this is the old man, one-eyed, limping, gets drunk at a party, loses his temper with his son, and then you know, goes in with a sword, but falls over halfway across the floor. And Alexander laughs, you know, you're talking about crossing to Asia, you can't even get across the floor at me. That's the Philip we think of. He's sort of perpetually old and really past it. You know, we're, we're waiting. Alexander needs to be king so he can mount Bucephalus and charge off to glory and everything happens from then on. But what we forget is that Philip wasn't always the old man. And Plutarch tells us these stories of Alexander, you know, the young Alexander hearing stories of his father's victories and feeling depressed because is my father going to leave anything great for me to do? Now it's probably invented like a lot of these anecdotes, but that's the sense. And you go back to 359 BC when Philip becomes king. He's the youngest of three brothers and both of his other brothers have become king before him but have died, one murdered, the other died in battle against the Illyrians. Most of the Macedonian army has gone with him. Macedonia has shrunk to a shadow of its former self. It's picked on by the Illyrians, the Thracians, and the big Greek cities of the south. You know, you've got to remember Philip spends a couple of years as a teenager as a hostage at Thebes because his brother's given him over as surety because the Thebans are the great power in, in northern Greece at that time. So this is someone who becomes king unexpectedly, you know, the youngest of three brothers, and he's got half brothers, and there are other people in the family with a claim to the throne. There was no expectation when Philip was born that he was going to become king at all. And given the way the Macedonians kill each other and the royal family in particular seems to be trying to make itself extinct, the chances of him lasting very long don't seem that great either. So you have this king who's at the stage, he's only 23, 22, 23, we're not quite sure of his precise age at that point, is made king. He's got enemies on all sides. He's got other claimants to the throne challenging him. And somehow he turns things around. But you've got to think of a different Philip. This is the Philip who's young, who's notably good looking, who's charismatic, who hasn't yet got the wounds, the scars, the alcohol problem, um, you know, isn't limping, and is also unproven. Nobody knows he's going to be good at warfare. Nobody knows he's going to be such a shrewd politician and a political operator. So he's someone who within the space of a year can rebuild the army, defeat the Illyrians and drive them back, defeat two or three other claimants to the throne, and then by the year after that, he's starting to expand Macedonia. And there's this military reform he presides over, this reform of the state that allows him to start doing things that no Macedonian king has ever done before. And that's the, one of the reasons for coming back to, to talking about the two of them. There were plenty of people who were still alive when Alexander died in Babylon who could remember the days before Philip, who could remember Macedonia as this weak, insignificant, place that was always tearing itself apart or being robbed by its neighbors. And then suddenly in the course of, you know, 30 years or more, it's not that long at all, they go to conquer half the world. And you can understand people looking around and thinking, how on earth did that happen? You know, this doesn't make sense. If you're an Athenian or a Theban or a Persian, how come these non-entities had suddenly done this? But it all starts with Philip and those 20 years where he, he keeps winning. You know, he could easily have lost, he could easily have got killed in battle early on. Like Alexander, he takes a lot of risks, but he keeps on gambling, he keeps on winning, the state keeps growing, his power keeps growing, and he's always taking the next roll of the dice, the next gamble, the next war, the next success, just as Alexander will do.
in a way and well first off i apologize if you can hear in the background my dog downstairs is barking at something um hopefully that i can uh minimize that effect um but yeah i mean it, it almost feels like kind of you know alexander benefited from this whole groundwork that philip laid over many years that's kind of um you know like we talked about lost in in most of the popular accounts the philip that you're describing is the one that we see a lot of in popular culture is the one that kind of we see in the movie alexander um you know where he's just this older figure uh in in like you said we're kind of waiting for him to die but in my uh in looking into philip a little bit it, it sounds like and i think you're touching on this that he made a, a number of innovations um on the military side that kind of really set the stage for Macedon to become this major superpower within Greece. Can you talk a little bit about some of the specifics of, of, of that kind of thing and how he influenced their, their army? Yes. I mean, essentially the, the army that Alexander will take to, to Persia is Philip's army. Right. But there are two factors. One of them is obvious, and that's the sort of the reform of the army, the tactical changes. And there's another one we'll talk about afterwards that's, almost as important, but a bit less visible. But the army reform, it, it starts, really, you've got to remember, this is a world where in Greece, the hoplite remains the dominant figure on the battlefield. This is the fairly heavily armored spearman who fights in a, a phalanx. And the hoplite is the product of the Greek city-states, their system, you know, it requires that society. You can't really have them without that. And it requires the culture of the gymnasium, of this sort of patriotism, this desire to excel. Even the ones who end up as mercenaries and fight for anybody have started that way as citizens. This idea that I'm a citizen soldier, I fight for my polis, I fight for my city, and all my neighbors see how well I do and judge me on that. So therefore I have to be good. Macedonia doesn't have that society. It doesn't have those sort of cities. So it doesn't have hoplites and its infantry have always been thought of very poorly. And one of Philip's predecessors had introduced Greek equipment to the Macedonian army without apparently making any difference. So it's, it's less about the equipment than the culture that produces that sort of soldier. Philip does something different. He gives his men, instead of spears, these long 18-foot sarissae. The, the sarissa is a, a pike you have to hold two-handed. It's much less about individual skill. It's far more about keeping together in a group. And it, at first as well, it keeps the enemy at a distance. It's quite hard for them to hurt you. So he ends up training his infantry like this and he does train them, they get better. They get better at keeping in formation, changing formation, moving, but also marching between the battles, getting there first before the enemy expects you is a big characteristic of both Philip and Alexander's way of fighting. And he marries this with the companion cavalry that he expands greatly. These are the nobility, the people who can afford a horse, can afford to know how to ride, and Philip, as he conquers territory, parcels out plots of land to men who are then obliged to serve him. In a sense, almost like medieval knights serving their lord. You know, I give you this estate, you therefore serve me in the army. So these are highly motivated. They share in the, the benefits, the rewards of conquest. And they also, they fight alongside the king. You know, they're called companion, hetairoi, for a reason. They are, they are linked to the king. The king leads them in person, they follow him. So there's this sort of very close personal bond. So he starts creating that. He gets the, the sort of the elite infantry, the true professionals, the hypaspists, the, the sort of the, the royal guard who might well be fighting with equipment more like hoplites, but they're there 
And to this Macedonian component, he starts adding on the mercenaries and the allies. You get cavalry from Thessaly, who are every bit as good as the Macedonians. You get the Thracians, the Illyrians, but you also get in time Greek hoplites and others. And then as Alexander goes through Asia, you will add on horse archers from the steppes. You'll add on hoplites from Cardia, oh, sorry, from Caria in Asia Minor. And you can keep bolting on. The, the, mass of, the proportion of the army that's Macedonian declines as the army gets bigger and bigger through their two reigns. But it's always the most important part. They're always the key commanders. They're always the ones. And Philip and Alexander lead by example, but they do that. They charge at the head of their men because they've got this well-trained team behind them. They know that the officers on the spot are going to do the right thing if there's a problem. So Alexander can be there charging ahead at the, you know, at the head of his companion cavalry, fighting in the middle of a combat where he can't see a thing of what's going on in the wider battle, but he trusts the rest of the army to do the right thing. And on the whole, they get it right and they live up to it. So that's the sort of the obvious reform. It's, it's a combined arms, it's a well-balanced, much more subtle force. You know, it's got different ways of adapting to situations, different troop types. So there's, in any situation, there's always something it can do that its enemy probably can't. But the second thing we tend to forget because we concentrate on the big battles like Issus and Gaugamila or Chironea before, is Philip from the start starts hiring siege engineers. And his army and Alexander's army, most of the time they were fighting, they were trying to attack fortified settlements, cities, walled villages in the mountains. This was something Greek armies weren't good at doing. Alexander and Philip perfect this because they get the technology, but the determination. So it means that Philip can start taking territory and taking cities. You know, Athens had been trying to take cities by blockade in the region multiple times, blockades lasting a year or more always fails. Philip will go and besiege the place and take it in a few months, if not quicker. He might take some casualties in the process, but he achieves results. So that, it's something we forget because it's a little bit less dramatic. And many of the places they capture, like Pydna, Olynthus, you know, they're not particularly famous, let alone some of the, the mountaintop strongholds that Alexander will spend time attacking. But capturing them means you can control the land around them. And that makes a huge difference. That means you're winning the war decisively instead of just, it's a battle, we'll maybe have to find another one in 10 years' time. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, I hadn't thought much about the siege element, but I know that that played a, a you know took quite a bit of time in certain stages of alexander's career um and that was something they were quite focused on so that's that's interesting so can we can we kind of um go to now when alexander uh inherited macedon can you can you talk a little bit about kind of what what you think happened there um with philip uh being killed and and um and then kind of what Alexander did next and what eventually led him out of Greece and into Asia. One thing you have to remember is that Philip had already decided on and started the war with Persia. So there's an advance guard has already crossed to Asia Minor and is waiting there for him. And had he not been murdered by the end of that year, or certainly in the spring of the next year, he would have gone off with that great army, the thing that Alexander will do 18 months later. The other difficult thing is that while we know of Pausanias, the man who stabbed Philip to death when Philip was walking into the theater there to, you know, the, the applause of all the representatives of Greece as well as the, Macedon the Macedonians who were waiting there, 
we know the personal reasons why this man acted. And given that Aristotle, who knew both Philip and Alexander, accepted that part, it's probably true. So even though it's this really gruesome tale of a discarded lover who then humiliates a, another lover of Philip and then is subsequently got drunk, gang raped, beaten up and humiliated by a nobleman and wants blames Philip for not giving him revenge on this man and therefore personal honour means he stabs Philip to death. It's so hard to know the politics behind it all. You know, there were rumours at the time was Olympias Alexander's mother involved? Was Alexander involved? Were there other factions within the Macedonian nobility? We, certainly, we know so little about court politics that it's hard to tell. And Alexander acts very quickly and he's backed by one of the key noblemen um, as well, so that you have, within hours, he's proclaimed king, he's recognized, any rivals are starting to get killed off. On the other hand, his father's dead, what else is he going to do? You know, this is a man who likes action anyway, who is always swift to respond to a situation and clearly wants to be king. He's ambitious, he expects this. Philip's only other son, um, Philip IV, as he'll later become, is for some reason mentally or physically considered incapable um, of, of succeeding. So Alexander's always the most obvious choice, but that doesn't mean that things aren't going to go back to how they've been. Sorry, I've just got a cat jumping up. <laughs> oh, I will. Okay. Excuse me a second. I'll just shut the door. Okay. Yeah. I. I, I obviously understand. Um, <laughs> you know, we're all quarantining, and uh, my dog's barking, and there's cats, and so um, it's all I good. Meant to, I meant to shut the door and forgot, but uh, I thought they'd be asleep upstairs. Oh, no, so. it's, all, it's all good. They have this great tendency to sit on the computer. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, so Alexander is proclaimed king, but there's a big difference. When Philip's made king, Macedonia is so weak. And again, it's just over 20 years earlier. People can remember that. All the vultures, all the people he's defeated, all the people he's humiliated are waiting to see what's going to happen. You know, is the change permanent? Did it all depend on Philip? Is it going to be the same with this 21-year-old kid? Yeah, he's fought a couple of battles, but he's never really done anything much on his own. Right. And hope would be for your enemies, you can see this with Demosthenes in Athens, that Philip's gone, Philip was the great enemy, he was the demon, he was the, you know, the, the, the incredible commander, the unscrupulous politician, this kid will be easy to outwit, Macedonia is going to be weak again, this is the time to strike. And a few states try this, and some of the, the tribes on the borders also try it. So you have about a year and a half where Alexander marches south and then marches to the north and the different frontiers, um, campaigning against the Thracians, the Illyrians, demonstration of force in Greece, and then culminating in the siege, capture, and sack of Thebes, one of the, the three great cities of the, the southern Greece, um, really as an object lesson, this is what happens if you oppose me. Um, and, you know, it's made particularly brutal. It's, it's a political extinction because it's not that you kill everybody, but you, you pull down the walls and you say this city is abolished. It no longer exists as a, as a community, as a political entity. And that strikes to the soul of most Greeks. But whereas Philip took years, you know, you could say it's, it's a decade really before he's truly secure on the throne. Alexander can do this in a year and a half because he learns as he's going along. You know, it, it's... There's a terrible temptation, particularly in older literature, to assume Alexander's just this genius, so you know, he gets an army and he just does wonderful things with it. 
Right. He has to learn, and the army has to learn to trust him. But it helps. It's like becoming captain of a sports team. If the team's been winning for years, it's easier to take over because right. you've got good people than one that's struggling. So you don't have to go from the start. So he, he can do that so quickly, and then he can leave for Asia Minor in 334 and never come back. And yes, there's a, a struggle later when Sparta um, fights against the Macedonians, but on the whole, Greece is secure. Athens never challenges him during his lifetime. You know, Greece is left secure after all the struggle, and the northern borders as well. On the whole, the Macedonian kingdom does very well without Alexander there, which again, would have been very hard to imagine a couple of decades earlier. So Alexander seizes the moment and he proves himself quickly. But again, the great problem for, for any historian looking at any subject is hindsight. We know what's going to happen. And when something spectacular is going to happen, you tend to assume it's, oh, well, it was bound to happen. You know, they're right. just, there's been this military revolution. He's a genius. Maybe Persia's weak, though it probably, you know, probably isn't necessarily. Alexander's going to charge it. This is bound to happen. Um, that's not how people saw it at the time. That's not, you know, maybe Alexander had the sort of ego that made him think, yeah, anything I want to do, I'm going to do. Right. Um, but most other people would be looking and thinking, yeah, really? You know, what's... Um, Greek armies had gone to Asia Minor before and attacked the Persians before, but they'd never really done much more than nibble around the edges, get some loot, get some plunder, and then come home. That's probably what everybody was expecting. Do you, and this kind of gets to the, some of the motivations behind going into Asia and challenging the Persian Empire. Um, it sounds like, you know, and, and, you know, that the evidence tells us that Alexander going there in the first place was a continuation of Philip's plans. Um, and I guess my first question would be, so do you believe that Philip would have left Macedon personally and gone into Asia and waged some long campaign there? Um, he, he was certainly going. That was, you know, he'd already sent the advance guard. He'd already effectively declared war on Persia, started the war. Hence, Alexander's claims, reasonably enough, you know, he was claiming that the Persians had had Philip murdered or arranged it because that might have been a simple way of solving this problem from their point of view. Right. So it's definitely Philip's plan. You know, he's had the League of Corinth, as we call it today. The Greek states have voted him hegemon, the leader of all of them, of this great Greek alliance for vengeance against the Persians for what they did to Greece in the invasions in the fifth century. So you know, this is a century and a half earlier. You're claiming I've got to now be avenged on you for what you did to me then. It's, by modern standards, it's, it's a weird pretext for a war. By ancient standards, whilst people could realize, yeah, it's a bit of an excuse, there's also that sense of honor, well, fair enough, you know. And you'd had all these, these Panhellenists, like Socrates and other people, talking for generations. We must attack Persia. The way to unite Greece, to stop Greeks fighting each other, find a common foe, go and conquer Persia, and sort of rule Persia as these um, great landlords so we don't have to do any work and we can aspire to a higher form of culture. So it's definitely Philip's plan, and it's one that he's arrived at, but other people have been talking about for some time. And the example of Xenophon and the 10,000, this mercenary army that ended up leaderless because it's, it's the person who hired them, Cyrus, is killed in battle. They're in the middle of the Persian Empire, and they march their way home, fighting everybody en route. They'd come to be this Greek belief that we're just better at fighting than the Persians, so it should be easy. They've got tons of cash, they're not very good at fighting, and you know, it'll be easy, we've just got to do this. 
But when people had tried it more recently, like the Spartans, the Thebans had sent mercenary armies over there, again, it didn't tend to achieve very much. And more often than not, the, the, the Greeks ended up being hired by Persian leaders or the Persian king. So it's Philip's plan, it's Philip's concept. Whether Philip would have taken it as far as Alexander, you know, he is that much older, maybe he was slowing down, but his campaigns earlier have been pretty ambitious. On the other hand, Alexander starts with this, there aren't going to be any limits to what I'm going to do. Let's see how far I can go. So right. I think there's the, the, probably the way it played out was different because Alexander was in charge, but it's, it's impossible to tell what Philip would actually have done. Well, and that's, you know, I think that's, um, it seems that one of the popular kind of analysis, analyses of all of this is that, um, you know, Philip, may have gone and tried to take back some of these different colonies and things that, you know, along the edge of the Mediterranean. Um, but it was Alexander that wanted to, wanted all of it and wanted to go into these direct battles. And that's kind of what I'm trying to understand. I mean, is, you know, we, we put Alexander, we take his personal ambition and we, um, and you know, we kind of mythologize it all. And I, I just, uh, for all we know, Philip may have felt the same way as Alexander. Is that right? Oh, certainly. And in those, well, I was going to say the early campaigns, but really throughout Alexander's campaigns, the army fights just as it had under Philip. The strategy is the same. The pace of operations, that was the thing that had surprised people in Greece, was that Philip would, would keep on going. He wouldn't stop for winter. You know, he would keep on attacking. He'd And he'd move from one theater to another. He'd march long distances. So Again, as I said earlier, it's, it's Philip's army and Philip's officers that Alexander leads into right. to Persia, and they fight in the way they've done under Philip. So there's no particular reason. Again, Philip's only 46 you know, when he, he's murdered. He's not that old, and his family tend to live a long time unless somebody kills them. Right. So it's surprising how many very elderly, in the same way you have you know, Parmenio, Antipater, leaders like this, Philip's men who are still commanding into their 70s and seem remarkably active in a way that is, you know, we have this, this assumption life expectancy is so low in the ancient world that you know, nobody lives very long and they must be decrepit by the time they're 50. Well, if you beat the odds and if you live that long, then actually some of them seem pretty tough. And, you know, the army itself, um, Justin comments that Alexander was choosing the veterans, that the army he took to Asia was quite elderly by our standards. You know, it wasn't all these teenagers and men in their early 20s. You know, you have these, the, um, like the Silver Shields later on under the successors, men in their 70s who are still formidable in battle. So there were really were some, some very tough and angry old men out there doing this. So limiting Philip by this expectation that he's not Alexander and he's not young, maybe his ambitions weren't as big, but we really don't know. And Alexander perhaps had this, this concept of himself and this, this great empire he was going to create that was bigger than Philip's. But the way he achieves it is really not that different. The way he fights is not that different. He sort of, it sounds like um, what you're saying is he, you know, he sort of inherited this, a lot of incredible tools that Philip had built. And, uh, and then Alexander saw some of that through. And I'm sure some of it was unique to Alexander, but it, it's definitely in keeping with what Philip, you know, was aiming toward and what he had set up. Can you talk a little bit about um, one one thing that you've touched on is 
some of these generals and commanders around Alexander and his army, and some of them were much older than Alexander. And my understanding is that there was kind of a, you know, a, a, a pretty influential faction of these generals that were really Philip's generals and that had been with Philip b- before Alexander. Can you talk a little bit about that dynamic and kind of what that was like when you have this young, um, you know, king who's going around conquering people and, you know, uh, what was that interplay like with his, with his own generals? You do sometimes wonder if the, the sort of almost excessive boldness of Alexander leading to the front is to prove to everybody that he can do this because he's, the, the rest of the army are veterans and he's not. You know, he's, he's led a minor campaign when he was about 16. He's fought at Chironea. But we don't even know. I mean, this is one of the, the mysteries, whether Philip was planning on taking Alexander with him to Asia if he, Philip had gone through with the expedition. So was he going to be left at home as a sort of regent there? Or was he going to earn his spurs, as it were, and keep, keep fighting? But yes, this is Philip's army, and these are Philip's officers. And some of them are even, they're old enough to remember the time before Philip. You know, so they've been through several coups, they've been through assassinations. So politically, they know kings of Macedon come and go, but if I'm important enough as a noble, skillful enough in politics, I can still be here. And you have the tradition preserved in several of the sources, particularly focusing on Parmenio, that Alexander will later have executed, um, where Parmenio gives advice and Alexander rejects it as too cautious and does the opposite and wins. With, with one exception, actually, there's one case where Parmenio is recommending, let's go out and fight a naval battle, um, and Alexander says, no, that's too dangerous, um, words to that effect. So there, there's a slight difference. Now, whether that's true, whether that's simply a good literary device to show again, this is the, you know, it's, it's like the cool kid, the one who always knows best, even if he hasn't got experience, but he can flout any convention, any perceived wisdom, I know, I trust myself, I'm going to win. So there's, there's some of that, it, you know, it helps to build up Alexander. And you do notice that all the battlefield accounts, which makes it so difficult to reconstruct what really happened in the big battles, um, they tend to start with, you'll get a description of the deployment of the army. Then it narrows down to the flank where Alexander is, and then it narrows down just to Alexander almost. And you, you sort of, you're lost in these, there are you know, 40,000 odd men on his side, as many more, perhaps several times more in the enemy, but you're focusing on this one guy. So that there is a problem, the sources keep focusing on him. And some of the people who emerge after Alexander's death as the key players in the wars of the successors are barely mentioned during his lifetime. But they're already old men in senior posts, but they're left behind to as satraps to control a province, this sort of thing. You know, Antigonus Gonatus, people like this. We we don't, you know, we they're mentioned two or three times, and then they become really important figures in the civil war. So they clearly are important men already and very skilled soldiers. Alexander can do what he's doing, both at the level of the battlefield tactically, but strategically. Again, it comes back to this: he can trust subordinates to do the right thing and to behave well, even with little resources, they will control the territory he's left behind. So he can go off and focus just on the war itself and on chasing down Darius and you know, winning that, that battle and then pushing on and pushing on because there's always somebody you've left behind on the whole who will manage things, who will cope. So it's again, that's, it's, it's the strength of, of Philip's army and Philip's system. It's one of these things he's inherited. There will be a change as the campaigns go on. 
Philip's men, some of them anyway, Parmenio is a victim because his son is accused of conspiracy against Alexander. Once you've executed the son, can't really leave the father alive, so he's killed as well. Um, others fall from grace, and you start, and others just get killed. You know, these people like Alexander and Philip, they lead from the front, they take risks, some of them die. So more of Alexander's men get appointed as time goes on, and because the army's bigger, there are more posts as well. But it's a gradual change. Can you, can you talk a little bit about what it was like to be that Macedonian king slash warrior? I mean, it's, you know, it, I, I think people think of the ancient world and oftentimes they think of a king who's sitting back on a hill or something like that. The armies go into battle. Um, that clearly wasn't the case when it came to uh, Philip and Alexander. There were many injuries. Um, they were actually in the battle um, and they were expected to be by their own uh, soldiers. Can you just talk a little bit about that and sort of uh, what that was like and what the responsibilities and expectations were for both Philip and Alexander? It's, it's a very different culture. I mean, you could say even in Greek armies, in hoplite armies, quite a few hoplite generals get killed because the tactics are fairly simple. Once you've deployed the army and your phalanx and you've set things up for the battle, you take your place in or near the front ranks and you fight and show yourself a good citizen like everyone else. But it's more, it's, it has more in common with the warrior cultures you get in Iron Age Europe and you get in much of, of, of Asia and the steppes as well, where the king is the war leader and he has to prove himself with you. And that's why you have this, again, it has echoes in, in the Iron Age and the Celtic world, this tradition of feasting around the king. The companions you know, share the king's meals, they drink with the king, they laugh with the king. They're allowed to mock each other, possibly the king gently, although there are probably limits. And they share in the rewards of the campaign because the king shares his good things with them, but also the dangers with them. So it's one of the misleading things when people will look particularly at Alexander and think, well, what were his plans for this new empire? You know, and you have all the old fashioned views of he was creating this sort of great equality of the races and all this sort of thing. The important thing to remember is that neither Philip nor Alexander had much time to stop and think. They spent nearly all their lives traveling with an army and a lot of it fighting. And yes, we look at, you know, Alexander fights about four big battles. Um, three against the Persians, one in India, but he's fighting constantly in raids, in skirmishes, in attacks on towns and cities, and most of his wounds come in those engagements. And if he's not doing that, he's marching through deserts, over mountains, through extremes of climbing. You know, um, he's suffering, he's riding, he's walking, he's trying. All of this is the example. You know, this, this is a shared thing. It's not just the, the companions of the cavalry, but the infantry as well, the Macedonians, were the king's tyro, the king's companions. The idea was we are all part of the same community. We're all in this together. Yes, he's the king. Yes, he's our leader. Yes, he has you know, extra things, but he doesn't dress that differently from us. There's not the finery. I mean, it will be a source of tension as Alexander tries to become a king for his subjects in the former Persian Empire and adopt some aspects of the ceremony they expect and Macedonians don't like. And you know there will be all these problems with that because how do you how do you change this style of kingship to completely different cultures? But for the Macedonians, and you suspect a lot of the Greeks and the others that are with the army, 
you fight because you know there's this man out there taking the risk, setting an example, and going first. They are bold. And you could say, in a sense, it's a little bit like the Middle Ages. If you look at the pattern of wounds, the protective equipment compared to the weapons you're, you're facing actually gives you an advantage. You know, you, many of the engagements, there are 10 times as many wounded as there are fatalities. And this is with relatively, you know, pretty primitive medical arrangements, but people take lots and lots of wounds, but they survive. So you've got more chance of taking these risks and getting away with it than you would have, say, you know, go to the Civil War era or something where a lot of conspicuous commanders are just going to be shot by a rifleman on the other side. That's not going to happen to you. Um, and you can trust to the fact that you're good at fighting and both Philip and Alexander you know, personally trained physically to be extremely good warriors, as did all the people with them. But you've also got all your close companions and your bodyguards around you. And Alexander's life is, is saved at the Battle of Granicus, famously when Black Clytus cuts the, the arm off a Persian just as he's about to slash down on Alexander and finish him off. So you can take these risks. It's, it's a calculated risk, but it, it is a real risk. You know, you might get killed. And some of these wounds, had it been, you know, an inch or so to one side or the other, a little bit stronger, a little bit more force, you know, when Philip gets shot in the eye, had that missile hit him squarely, then he might have been killed. Um, but they both ride their luck and they both get away with it and they, they keep going. So it's a huge incentive. There is a tremendous morale boost from this that you know the leader's there. He's, you know, he, is, he isn't just sitting back on the hill giving signals and then taking the credit afterwards. Um, but it's, so it, it's a cultural thing and then it adds into this whole sense, this is an army that's been winning for decades and it just gets used to the idea it will always win so it doesn't give up. So it's very, very hard to beat. Interesting. Um, yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's fascinating to think back about what it must have been like to be one of those soldiers and be having a feast after winning a battle and the king is, was in the same battle as you were and was injured. And, you know, it's, uh, um, it must have been an amazing, uh, you know, time. Um, so let's skip ahead a bit um, to Alexander defeats the Persian Empire. Um, and he starts to eventually run into some different kind of more conflicts with his own army and some of his own troops. Um, and kind of this, this so far undefeated uh, army that he inherited from Philip that has been winning everything. Um, it, it, there, there starts to be some more tension. Um, and I'm wondering if you can touch on that a little bit and um, kind of how was Alexander able to uh, keep that morale high or was he able to um, as he started to get further and further from Greece, as he started to try to incorporate um, some of the Persian customs and things like that into what he was doing? It's, it's almost a paradox about Alexander that on the one hand, he's this incredibly charismatic, inspirational leader. But there are other times where he just cannot seem to understand his own men. He doesn't see, he assumes that they're going to want exactly what he wants. And again, remember these men are, you know, they're, they're quite old when they start the campaign. And Philip had fought lots of wars, but there'd been breaks. You could go back home for a month or two. It's noticeable in, at the end of 334 BC, when Alexander's arrived in Asia, he sends the recently married men back home 
to see their wives and supposedly to sort of, you know, father the next generation of Macedonian soldiers and to recruit more people. But you've sort of got that last link of this idea. There's a big problem that essentially everybody's been talking about this from, you know, Philip onwards, this great expedition, let's go to Persia, let's defeat the Persian, let's make ourselves fabulously wealthy. And there's expectation of this and they share in it and they gain the wealth and they win. But what do you do next? With Alexander, the answer is simple. It's let's go and find somebody else to defeat. Let's go, you know, keep going. But for other people, you know, you've built up to this. It's, it's, it's almost like anything else, whether you build up to an exam or, a, you know, some important match or whatever it is. Once you've got there and done it, there's always that letdown. Athletes after the Olympic Games, what do I do next? Right. And the, the troops have got that. Alexander doesn't seem to understand that. And he, he manages to sort of cajole and bribe them on. But he does some quite strange things where he'll suddenly tell people in the middle of nowhere that, well, you can go home now. And is then surprised that they rather resent this. Um, he doesn't treat them as well. And then you have the final cases. Um, you know, you, you see this more with his senior officers, but it, it, it's, it's resented where he starts again, trying to be king to his Asian subjects and trying to, to create ceremony and ritual around him that will satisfy them, um, whilst also keeping the Macedonians happy. And it, it doesn't work very well. Neither side is, is satisfied by this sort of compromise. And again, you know, we see with Alexander this incredibly rapid conquest of a great empire. And to some extent, you can take over the Persian Empire as the Persians had done before. You know, they're a, a fringe group, just like the Macedonians in many ways, that under a charismatic war leader had replaced the previous dynasty, created an empire. So there's almost, this is a sort of the next in a pattern of going back to the Babylonians, the Syrians, and that, you know, whoever it was, this succession of great powers within that broader area of the fertile present. So to some extent, communities will accept him. Um, there's a, an interesting, um, cuneiform text from Babylon, one of the, the records of one of the temples that starts just before the Battle of Gaugamela and talks about trouble in the army of the King of Kings, Darius. And then it's the defeat of the King of Kings. And then it moves on. And then the, one of the last entries of the month is, and Alexander, the King of Kings, enters Babylon. And it's just this transition, right, fair enough, the king is dead, long live the king. They were both foreigners to us anyway, so who cares? Right. But to make this work, it all happens so quickly and Alexander keeps fighting. We don't ever see what he was aiming for and whether it would have worked, whether, as is common with a lot of imperial powers, you know, you have your early successes, but then you face rebellions. But Alexander's trying to do this as he goes along and keeps on conquering. So he misreads the rude mood of his men quite a few times and eventually to the extent where they won't go any further in India. And you know, a few theories that have come up that, oh, yeah, he meant this to happen. Um, you know, he really wanted to turn around anyway. If he'd meant it to happen, he wouldn't have done it that way. You know, this is embarrassing to him and it's seen as a defeat by our sources. And then later on, he's recruited all these teenage boys from um, various communities dotted around the conquests in Asia, taught them Greek, trained them as Macedonian pikemen, and brings this new phalanx of um, epigonoid successors to... Um, to Babylon and they march up and down and they demonstrate how great they are. And you know, he even talks about to his men, well, you know, I don't need you anymore. You know, this, this is, it creates another mutiny, they complain. He does get things badly wrong. And sometimes he's managing, he manages to bribe or bully them back, but not always. 
With the senior officers who are living much closer to him, the, the tension is higher, particularly because of this tradition where they all spend their time feasting and drinking so heavily and bickering with each other. So you have the plots or the rumors of plots. You have the, as with any royal court, ambitious men who see, well, the best way for me to win Alexander's favor is to go and say, well, somebody else is disloyal, somebody else is plotting. I'm loyal, they're not. Look at me, aren't I good? So you never know how much truth there are in some of the, the alleged conspiracies, but you have, you know, it's, it's still something that is hard to explain where Alexander gets into a row with Clytus the Black, the man who saved his life at the Granicus, and seems to panic, seems to think there's a mutiny on, grabs a spear, kills the man. And in part, it's a sort of, you know, it's an indication of just how well trained he was at fighting, that even, even badly drunk, he still gives a fatal wound but then talks about suicide and, you know, won't come out of his tent for a few days. It, it, it's, it doesn't seem, you know, it doesn't make any sense. This is clearly someone who's lost the, his, his temper, lost the plot for a while, and then thinks, well, how on earth do I deal with this? So they're, they're all struggling. You know, we, we need to remember Alexander as well is making this up as he goes along. Nobody's done what he's done before on this scale. Nobody quite knows what's right. And in any, you know, culture of flattery around a royal court, he doesn't know who's telling him the truth anyway, and he doesn't know who's plotting against him, but he does know that most Macedonian kings get murdered by people close to them. So that fear is always there. Doesn't matter how great you are and how many things you've done, they might kill you. You know, that the fear is real and the loneliness is real. Right. And I, you know, I have to also think that the conditions were difficult, uh, you know, on these trips, constantly traveling into new places for years on end fighting battles i mean it's it must have been very difficult to keep things on the rails in that kind of situation and it always did seem like alexander um was way more comfortable conquering than he was actually ruling uh you know he, he people spends very often, little time trying to rule you know that's right the, you know, and you know, one of his companions is singled out because he bothers to learn to speak the Persian language. Nobody else does. So they're dealing through interpreters all the time. They're not really that interested. They, they, you know, in a sense, they're a very good campaigning army, but the day-to-day -day business of being a king, of dealing with petitions, of dealing with problems, of ceremonies, it's not really what they're used to doing. It's not what he wants to do. And it's complicated. Now, there's something very simple about military action. It might be hard, it might be dangerous, but there's a problem, you overcome it, you win, you move on to the next one. And it is striking that every time there's an alleged plot, every time there's disturbances within the army or his leaders, it's when they've stopped in one of the lulls between campaigns. Whilst they're busy, they're all fine, they're focused, they keep going. But when they stop, the fatigue, the emotional ups and downs, you know, all the things they've been through, because it is, and the, the sheer distances they've come to completely different environments to anything they'd seen. You know, when they, especially when they get to India and they're, they're, uh, the sources take on this sort of almost mythical element, but they don't really understand about preachers and the rumors of what's coming, what's beyond there. It, it's, this is deeply strange for these men. And it, it's, it's not, it would be surprising if they were calm and they coped with it very well, to be honest. The, the, that they did break down and have all these problems is, is really what we should expect. Right, right. I want to touch a little bit on, on the sources for all of this. Um, it's something I've been thinking about for a while. 
there's a lot of uh, psychoanalysis of Alexander based on these sources um, about his childhood and and things like that. As as you know, uh, the sources that we have now uh, weren't were based on sources written around his time, but weren't finalized for hundreds of years afterward. And you know, it's a psychoanalysis is a difficult thing to do of people that we know personally, much less someone when when you start talking about sources based on sources based on sources from hundreds and thousands of years ago. In your account of Alexander and your research, were you able to come to kind of a confident assessment about kind of who Alexander was personally? Do you feel that way? No, no. And I, I deliberately didn't want to do that because I just don't think the sources allow it. You know, in comparison, even to I've written biographies in the past of people like Julius Caesar, Mark Antony, Augustus, we actually know far more about how the Roman aristocracy raised children, what their family life was like, compared to the Macedonians, where we know almost nothing. You know, we, we can talk about Alexander being born, Philip being born, but no doubt there were rituals, there were expectations, there were the way the family reacted to this, why they were named in that particular way. We don't have a clue how any of this happened. And as you say, the vast majority of sources for Alexander were set down over 400 years after his death, by which time the story had developed and grown. And Alexander had writers like Callisthenes and others traveling with him, writing these exaggerated um, accounts of what was going on anyway. So he started the myth-making. But there are many things we'd love to know about. And that's why, in a sense, these are biographies, but in another sense, they can't be true biographies because we cannot get to the real sense of either man. And, and as you say, I mean, you know, to be honest, quite a lot of us don't even know what's going on in our own heads, let alone anybody else's. Um, with, with Philip, you know, the relationship between Philip and Alexander's mother, Olympias, is clearly important to Alexander as well, his relationship with his mother. You know, he, but we don't know much about it. And you can speculate as much as you like. Hephaestion, you know, the, the companion, presumably of his youth, though he's not really mentioned until Alexander's king, is actually mentioned only a relatively small number of times in the sources altogether. We know about the spectacular morning Alexander sort of plunged into when Hephaestion drank himself to death. Um, he's clearly one of the most important people in Alexander's life, but quite how and what the relationship was, we really don't know. It's, it's it's like talking about their, their sexuality. The ancient sources aren't interested. They, they tell us so little that all we can do is speculate. And that just ends up, you can make an Alexander or a Philip of your own imagination. The great danger then as a historian is that when you come to problems and gaps in the sources, you say, well, this is what Alexander would have done. But it's entirely, you know, you're, there's no basis to that. It, it's in the end, we don't know. We don't know what he thought about all this, what he felt about all of this, because we don't, you know, if you had a personal diary, maybe you'd get a glimpse, but again, how many people are entirely honest and even in that? Right. Um, we can look at what they did and you can tell the great difference in quality of the sources that there are quite a few periods in Philip's life where we don't know where he was and what he was doing. Because most of the sources focus on his dealings with the Southern Greeks. They're not really bothered when he's off fighting the Thracians or the Illyrians. That was just, you know, a load of tribes in the north who cares about them, the barbarians. Um, with Alexander, we pretty much always know where he was and what he was doing. 
But with both men, you have to come back to reconstructing what it is they did, trying to understand how they did it, can speculate a little bit on why, but what it really meant to them or the people around them, I don't see any way of us ever knowing, unless some incredible personal sources turn up. But even then, um, it's going to be somebody's opinion. When you think of all the gossip that will surround celebrities, politicians today, how much of that is actually true and how much is going to make it into the sources that people are using 400 years from now to tell right. the story of the 21st century. And, and as you said, it, it was really his sources. I mean, it was mo most of the people, and correct me if I'm wrong, but most of kind of those biographies of Alexander are based on accounts that he had approved uh, to be written. Um, maybe some were not, but that was at least my understanding. Well, you have political speeches from Demosthenes and others that are critical of him that are contemporary. Right. And then once Alexander was dead, you then had people, you know, bear in mind one of the, the best sources of Arian, who is the fullest, apparently the most sober, though people would argue about that of our sources for Alexander, is based on Ptolemy, one of Alexander's companions who becomes king, the kingdom based in Egypt in the wars of the successors. He clearly has an agenda to legitimize his own rule and say, look, I'm the true successor of Alexander. So his record, you know, his, his, his life, is then distorted for political purposes and grows. I mean, you have the, it'll last with the Middle Ages, the Alexander Romance in its various form, this fantastic version of it. But you'd really want to have, you know, a few accounts, not just from the top, but what was it like for one of these Macedonians who trudged all the way from Northern Greece to modern day Pakistan, you know, as a, as a soldier? What was it like as well, the other obvious thing missing for the Persians, for the peoples in India, for whom suddenly this, barbarian army, as you would see it, turned up on your doorstep, wanting to kill you and steal all your money. You know, I mean, the, we'd wanted to get the history, the full story, we'd want to know their side of it. We're never going to get any of that. And it's quite interesting when you look at more recent events, how quickly, especially for quite complicated events, like a battle, a sort of narrative develops that everybody can tell, but that doesn't necessarily reflect what people remembered immediately afterwards. Um, it just gets told in a story and that's why, and it's a good story. And it's very hard to, to change that. Um, you know, getting people to challenge something that they've grown up thinking, yeah, that's what happened, is really hard uh, with, with any period of history. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, before, before wrapping up, I think the, the last topic I'd like to just touch on is the legacy of, of Philip and Alexander. Um, you know, I was... <laughs> Uh, having an interesting dialogue with someone online recently about the archaeological evidence left over from Alexander's campaigns. And there really apparently isn't a whole lot. Um, I mean, Alexander came in, he would conquer different areas. He would move on. He didn't live a long life. Um, you know, the, the Macedonian empire that stretched across Egypt, Greece, uh, Asia, it wasn't the Roman Empire. It didn't last for hundreds of years and leave behind all of these, all of this documentation. Um, although it was, it was, uh, you know, as extensive, if not more so than the, than the Roman Empire geographically, it didn't last very long. And there wasn't really a succession plan in place when Alexander died at a young age. Can you talk a little bit about kind of 
what happened there after Alexander died, and then more broadly, what lasting influence did did Philip and Alexander have on the world? It's quite profound, but it is rather indirect because, as you say, Alexander's empire as one entity is is very short lived. You know, it breaks up within months, really, certainly years of his death because he doesn't have a clear heir. You know, Roxanne, one of his wives, is pregnant. Turns out that it's a boy. He's named Alexander IV, but he's never allowed to rule and is killed before he becomes an adult. Even if Alexander had married as soon as he became king and his wife had had a child, that child would still have been in his early teens, even if it was a boy when Alexander died. So, you know, yes, he didn't plan for the future, but even if he had, there wasn't a lot of time. However, it is worth remembering that a large part of Alexander's empire remains under Macedonian or Greek rule for quite some time, but separate rules. So you have the Seleucids, Antigonid Macedonia and the Ptolemies in Egypt are the three sort of big winners in the long run. Um, the Seleucids co- control much of the eastern parts of the empire and even at various stages, though they, they lose it relatively quickly, parts of northern India, parts of what's now Afghanistan, all this sort of thing. You'll then have Bactria, a, a Greek-based kingdom, and you can see from the archaeology there that Greek coins, Greek language, cities with aspects of Greek culture in and a Greek dynasty last for centuries until their eventual. And the influence can stay long. You'll, you'll receive that reflection in you know, Gandharan art in northern India. There's that Greek influence. Now, the first Greeks didn't get there because of Philip, Philip and Alexander. You know, others were already there trading. There were settlers. There had been a few, but it massively increased. And because the Romans take on so many aspects of Greek culture, so you have the Greco-Roman culture of, of the empire, aspects of it will survive. Um, the Romans will take some of what had been Alexander's empire, but others will be under the Parthians and then the Persians. Greek communities remain in many of those cities. You know, communities calling themselves Greek. Ethnically, they may have no trace at all, but they speak the Greek language. They think of themselves as Greek citizens in cities like Seleucia, that will be one of the main cities of the Parthian Empire. Um, the Greek language has spread so that Aramaic had been the main language of, of the Persian Empire for administration and for long-term communication. Greek comes alongside it in some places, supplants it. It's, you know, in a sense, why we get a, a New Testament written in Greek, why mm. um, you'll get the Talmud translated into Greek as well. It, all of the, so cultural ideas are there, but it is a striking thing. Archaeology tends to show us long-term trends, long-term traces, settlements where people live for a while. Only rarely do we find traces of a battle or a siege or anything like that. So, you know, there's also, there's hardly any archeological evidence for Roman expansion under the Republic hmm. that created that. But we know it's there because, you know, you can get the, the sort of the approach where, hang on a minute, did this really happen? Well, it, it did, it just shows us what we tend to think of as archeological time, what we see on a site often is not um, is not how we live our lives. You know, we tend to think archaeologically 10 years, 20 years seems a short time. In a human existence, that's quite, you know, these are significant periods. So right. um, it does make a difference. And there is the dream and there is the memory. I mean, you get in the Zoroastrian Persian tradition, this sense of Alexander as the villain, Alexander as the man who destroyed fire temples, you know, this sort of thing. But there's also the romantic stories about Alexander, the great hero, 
And even strangely, you'll get in some of the Persian literature, he transforms into Alexander, the king of Rome, because your big rival are the Romans or Byzantines as they'll later be. So some Westerner, you know, comes and attacks you, he must be a Roman. So it's strange how all these sort of different threads merge together. So that there's a legacy there, but it, it isn't the shaping, it doesn't shape culture in quite the same way. The Macedonians didn't add much to the Greek culture that already existed, though they did largely end the freedom of the Greek city-states. Um, so again, that's quite profound as to what Greek history will be, but because the Romans take a lot of this on, they'll take it in the modified Macedonian style form. So it's there, but it's, it's quite subtle. Interesting. Well, uh, obviously, Alexander continues to loom large in the public's imagination. Um, he's one of the most talked about historical figures of all time. And I'm very, uh, I'm very excited to dive into this new book, um, uh, Philip and Alexander, Kings and Conquerors. It's available October 13th on Amazon, I believe, as well as at bookstores, I'm assuming. Um, and it looks like it's getting great reviews so far. Uh, and based on this conversation, I'm even more interested in reading it. I love this approach. You know, I think we've all, those of us who have looked into Alexander, we've all come across, you know, accounts that are not quite as plausible or obviously the, the author is really projecting a lot onto the, the character of Alexander that the evidence doesn't necessarily back up. And it looks like, uh, you have not taken that approach and even gone, you know, the other way and trying to put in the context around Philip and actually what was going on at the time and what Alexander inherited. So I'm excited to read it. Thanks for talking to me today, Adrian. Uh, uh, it's been really interesting conversation. Is there anything else you want to add uh, before we hop off? No, it's fine. It's, it's um, you know, when you spent three years writing a book, you could go on forever, but it's, it's best not to do that. <laughs> Absolutely. I think maybe in the future we can have another conversation. I, you know, I'm, I'm sure that we'll get back to Alexander uh, many more times in, in, in our podcast here. So uh, we'll reach out to you on some other topics as well. So thanks a lot. Thanks for inviting me. All right. Thank you to Derek Feischer for composing the music used in this episode. As always, you can find the links to the different things we talked about and many more articles about the mysteries of the ancient world at ancientheroes.net. Talk to you soon.